Eric Tamblazer is one of the world's thought leaders in orphan drugs and rare disease indications. He was also the industry's negotiation lead with the European Commission and Parliament on the Orphan Medicinal Products Regulation, introduced in the year 2000. As an entrepreneur in 1985, he co-founded and managed the biotech company InnoGenetics, ultimately acquired by Fujirabio. He is the executive chairperson and co-founder of the Biopontis Alliance for Rare Diseases, an international philanthropic foundation turning science into medicines. Eric, it's great to see you. Good to see you too. Now, you've been involved with orphan drugs and rare conditions from the very earliest discussions of their existence as a treatment class in Europe. What is an orphan condition and why are they treated differently than the common indication? There is actually no definition of a rare disease that we could find. Mm -hmm. Um, There is only a definition of a disease covered with an orphan drug or an orphan medicine And by uh, relying on that definition, you can define a rare disease again in terms of prevalence. So it's it's the frequency and disease prevalence that defines whether a disease is an orphan drug or not? When there is an orphan drug available for it uh, or a designation. When there is not, uh, in fact, there is no real definition of the rare disease by itself. So what happened before? What was the situation before the OMP was negotiated, the orphan drug regulation? Um, There were only a few products for uh, so-called rare diseases that were available at the time. In Europe, there were only eight Mm -hmm. products available. They called them orphan-like products Mm -hmm. before the year 2000, uh, at which time the European regulation was introduced. And I think in the US, it was about similar. There were about 10 products available before the Orphan Drug Act became available in 1983. In Europe, they define an orphan drug as a product for a disease with less than 5 per 10,000 mm-hmm. affected. In the US, it's less than 200,000. So Europe is a bit more strict in terms of its prevalence value, but it's not so different that it makes a large difference. Now, you joined Genzyme in 1992. You were one of the main thought leaders who negotiated the orphan drug legislation. The US had the orphan drug indication from 1983, What do you think the impact has been since it's been introduced? Um, It has been a real necessity. The reason that Europe couldn't do anything about orphan drugs before was that the European Medicines Agency had to be created first. Mm -hmm. You have to have a large enough population to be covered by the work involved in a regulation. Mm -hmm. That happened in 1994. So immediately after that, the Commission started working on an orphan drug regulation version for the European Union. That took time, uh, which was reasonably short, uh, between '96 when the draft was first introduced, till 2000 when it was uh, actually introduced as a regulation. Four years for such a complex uh, topic is quite quick. At that time, I was the industry negotiation lead, as you said, but we worked together with the patient organizations and with the scientists because, uh, as the commission pointed out from the beginning, this regulation wasn't made for the industry but for the patients. Right. Because you have to remember, there were only very few orphan drugs, uh, orphan-like drugs available before the regulation. And that meant that in the whole history of these uh, patients with rare, mostly genetic diseases, no therapies has 
have ever been available. So it was time that something was done about that. It's fascinating that you, as the senior vice president of Genzyme, were leading this initiative. Can you tell, for folks who may not know, why Genzyme being involved in orphan drugs is so important? Yeah, Genzyme was one of the first, or perhaps even the first company, getting involved in development of treatments for uh, rare diseases, starting with the product for Gaucher's disease, at first Ceridate and then Cerezyme, a recombinant version. Because of that introduction, Genzyme became a frontrunner in the field of rare diseases and later on developed many more uh, orphan drugs. Me being in Europe and the orphan drug regulation being discussed there, it became natural that I took the lead uh, from the industry. I formed an orphan drug task force first at Europa Bio, later on together with FPA and EBE. We brought together also the patient groups and discussed with them what their concerns were, as well as the scientists. And we came to a common position on what we wanted the draft to be looking like. Mm -hmm. And so we presented that to the European Commission. How did you end up at Genzyme after being an entrepreneur? Because you ran your company from 1986. It was acquired. So then how did you find yourself at Genzyme? Well, it was uh, only acquired much later. I left the company Inogenetics in 1992 to join uh, former Baxter colleagues who had founded Genzyme or who were managing it. And they convinced me to join them. And uh, I was very intrigued. and uh, looking for a new challenge at that time. So I did join in 92. Sounds like you made the right choice. (laughs) (laughs) It was an interesting move. It was also interesting because it allowed me to be in contact with patient groups. I was told later on by industry peers, uh, being the first one of industry in contact with patient groups. Mm -hmm. And that allowed us to build EPOSI at the time, the European Platform for Patient Organization Science and Industry. One of the first patient groups in Europe at the time. Well, it wasn't a patient group. It was a platform between the three organizations, industry, science, and patient groups talking at the same level, and that was interesting for the politicians and the policymakers. Well, then that's very common now, but again, at the time when you started doing that... It that wasn't existing. Yeah, it didn't exist. No, indeed. So it was very interesting because being in that platform allowed us to enter into the Senate mm-hmm. in different countries in which we could discuss together with all the groups involved about uh, themes that were important for all of us, but all related to rare diseases. Do you think it's because this is a social system that talks about solidarity that that's why these things have developed in Europe? It was actually more related to the nature of the rare diseases. Mm -hmm. It is clear that the diseases are mostly so rare that only the patients themselves know their disease best. And in common diseases... The industry only got in contact with patients, mostly even indirectly, at the time of clinical trials. Right. With rare diseases, there had to be contact with the patient groups because otherwise the diseases wouldn't be well understood. And it wasn't sufficient to talk with the experts alone. And the system of clinical trials requires large bandwidth and large amounts of patients. And you just, when you're dealing with orphan conditions, you just don't have that. Yeah, mostly when you set up a clinical trial, you don't know where the patients are. Right. You need the patient groups to help you to find those patients to organize them. This is much different today. It's much better organized, but that was the time of the 90s, and it wasn't yet the case. (laughs) Do you think the EU orphan drug legislation, the OMP, has been a success? 
since you've put uh, it in place? I think it is undeniably a success. When there were eight orphan-like products, now there are 167 approved orphan drugs and 1,640 orphan drug designations. <laughs> so it's a dazzling number. These 1,640 will not all turn into orphan drugs, of no, course. No, of course not. But some 20% perhaps will. And that's much more than before. Nevertheless, there are still about 94% of rare diseases not covered by an approved therapy. So there is still a lot of work to be done. And that's why the orphan drug regulation is still very actual. It's still very much needed. So to fill that gap in those 94% that aren't yet addressed, what could we do with the legislation or how could the orphan drug regulations be improved? What do you think is still lacking? I think there are a couple of things that are important. First, I think there is a lot of basic research that is done. And that basic research is often staying in the shelves or in the drawers. There is much research available that is not being worked on. And that's why we created the, the Biopontis Alliance for Rare Diseases, a philanthropic foundation trying to work with that existing basic research in the field of neurology and turn that into proof of concept for uh, uh, rare disease uh, therapies. The translational research part, of course, is taken up partly by small biotech companies, sometimes by large pharma, much less often than by small biotechs. But there are so many products that are potentially there when people would take that translational step to turn them into therapies. The fact that you have many thousands of rare diseases, but that for most of them, being genetic diseases, the biology and the genetics are starting to get known. Right. You think that it starts to be more um, of a routine to develop therapies out of that, and that's not yet the case. So there is still a lot of work to be done. And so at BioPontis Alliance, how are you trying to fill that gap that exists, that knowledge gap in the scientific discovery on the orphan drugs that still is not a... It's not an easy process yet. First of all, it's a small incremental step at a time because this is a new organization that we are trying to set up to, to work on the, the bridge between academic research, biopontis, <laughs> uh, the proof of concept needed by industry. When was it set up, Eric? It was set up in 2015, and we started to be operational 2016, so not very long ago. We take academic research with parties that have been selected because, according to our scientists, the products are uh, potentially developable. Like I <laughs> there's say a, so there's a, there's a viable target that you could go that, after. Yes. It's possible to start with the data that we find to go forward to therapy development. When that's not the case, the product is too early. project is too early. We don't look at that. And are, are scientists or researchers coming to you and saying, hey, look, I've got this indication that's promising, and then you're evaluating it? Or how's the yeah, process and working? and we are looking also um, at uh, possibilities. We look at it in a professional way. We make a, a contract, and we start working on it. And the difference of what we do compared to others is we don't facilitate deal-making, for example. We are actually doing the work ourselves. In a virtual way, we organize under leadership of our project manager a project into 
therapy development steps with milestones and also co-finance uh, that work uh, along the way. So then it's more like venture philanthropy. It's the model that we've, that we've seen. Yes, but venture philanthropy also includes uh, impact investment. And in our case, it's a philanthropic uh, activity. Sure. We may go to venture philanthropy when we are a bit bigger mm-hmm. because uh, that requires all different uh, systems and uh, legal requirements as well. So that's something we look at, but we are not yet at that stage. So in 2017, roughly half of all the indications that were approved by the Food and Drug Administration in the U.S. were orphan. We're still seeing an enormous amount of growth in the orphan drug pipeline here in Europe. What do you think would have happened had Europe not passed the OMP? Well, first of all, the step towards rare diseases is also related to the fact that many common diseases are actually a mixture of several rare diseases into a a basket. Mm -hmm. When we talk about Alzheimer's today, it's not one disease. When we talk about diabetes, it's not one disease and so on. In some cases, that leads to definition of rare diseases within a common disease. Mm -hmm. If you look at cancer, for example, there are only five or six cancers that are not a rare disease. Mm -hmm. And there are many cancers. All the rest are actually rare diseases. But you said something, Eric, when we started working together, which now is proving true. And I think a lot of people used to look at you and kind of say, really? Not so sure. But you used to say eventually all drugs and all conditions will be orphan or rare conditions. And you were quite ahead of the curve on that. And it seems to be that you've been proven right. I think indeed that many diseases, as we mentioned before, are turning into a set of different diseases. That's even within rare diseases the case. We are currently working on the disease uh, with a strange name, Charcot-Marie-Tooth. Yeah a disease caused by 70 or 80 different genes. There are at least eight clinical variants, so after a while this is going to prove to be a collection of diseases instead of one, for example. Even within rare diseases you can have that. You also will hopefully see the opposite direction in the future, that while the biology between different disease uh, indications prove to be the same, you can perhaps have the same therapy also apply to what is now called the different disease and go to unification again, like is already happening in oncology yes. sometimes. Savaldi, which mm-hmm. was a, just a broad-based cure. With cystic fibrosis, there's still a long way to go because if I... Uh, remember the latest number, there are 1,700 mutations. Yes. Some of them extremely rare, some of them more frequent. And at the time, they are covering something around 15% with uh, the currently approved drugs of all CF patients. So there is still a long way to go. Plenty to go. With this increasing targeting and orphanization of therapeutics, just because the science is leading us there, there's growing concern being expressed by a lot of European payers, HTAs, etc., that the current situation is unsustainable. Do you think this concern is justified? Well, of course, future will tell, but I have a few observations. Um, the first is with the current therapy, which is for 50%, let's call it like that, still trial and error. Right. There is a lot to be gained by an effective therapy based on a correct diagnosis. And that's what uh, targeted therapy actually does. So on the one hand, you have a diminution of the size of the population to be treated, but at the same time, you are 
hoping to treat them much more effectively than before. So you have a higher impact. You have a much higher impact. So that's going to allow savings uh, from that side. The second thing, and there is a difference between Europe and the US. In Europe, after 10 years, an orphan drug is being taken out of the register of orphan medicines. It's no longer called an orphan medicine. Mm -hmm. So I would think that what needs to happen with the orphan drug regulation is on the one hand a link with access requirements because when a product comes on the market and it's not being brought to patients, no one benefits. So the first thing is really that access should be ensured in the best possible way and there should be some criteria for that. And secondly, when the market exclusivity is over, there should also be a consequence of that. And that should be perhaps a part of the price negotiation that is being done or something similar because I think when you have an orphan drug on the market, you want to make sure that the definition of orphan drug is valuable. You also have to make sure that the price that is being charged for such orphan drug being protected by market exclusivity is fair. There have to be some criteria. Fair doesn't mean low. Fair just means fair, based on uh, independent criteria. But then after that market exclusivity is done, that the market exclusivity is over, companies should have been able to regenerate uh, its investment. After that time, there should be something uh, done about the price setting. Negotiation should be starting the front end. If market exclusivity <clears throat> is attacked or changed... Do you think it would have a radical impact on the investment climate? You don't need to change anything to the current system. You just need to add something. Mm -hmm. Because what I'm not pleading for is to change the market exclusivity period. I'm uh, pleading for a change of the behavior after it is over. Sure. Because now, in most cases, the price arrangements, etc., stay the same. Why is there nothing done about that? Because that wouldn't need to change the whole system. That would just need a dialogue uh, before the start of uh, a new contract with payers and then an execution uh, after market exclusivity is over. Are we saying that it's off-market behavior or protectionism after the expiration of the market exclusivity? Do you think that that's causing trouble? Is that poisoning the well? Well, it seems to me that when you make an agreement about a, a really innovative orphan drug coming on the market, that is then going to be protected for a, a period, seven or ten years, that when that period is over, it's difficult to change anything because it wasn't foreseen to change. Right. So I think what will happen after that period should also be already negotiated beforehand in a dialogue with uh, the authorities, the payers, uh, the industry, the patient groups, so that a product doesn't have the same price impact anymore, independent of the fact that there are biosimilars or generics coming on for the same indication. Because sometimes it's not meaningful that for an orphan drug, another product is being developed because the market is already so small. There are exceptions, but... Uh, in the U.S. right now, there was a report on National Public Radio that seven of the ten best-selling drugs are for orphan indications. This is sort of having a, a global impact in that many people internationally feel, okay, we don't need the orphan status anymore because these drugs obviously are doing great. Do you 
believe that it's true? It's actually very much related to what I just said. Sure. First of all, there is a difference between Europe and the U.S. In, in the U.S., orphan drugs are called orphan drugs for their lifetime, uh, also after the market exclusivity expired. In Europe, they are taken out of the register of orphan medicines. So I do think indeed that after the market exclusivity is over, that you could weigh on the pricing, but then they shouldn't be called orphan drugs anymore. Right because it's confusing the system. The products that are listed in that article you refer to are products of which the orphan drug exclusivity has long expired. So I don't think it's fair to call them orphan drugs. At the same time, when you have a new orphan drug, that needs the orphan drug exclusivity to be able to get developed and uh, give some return on investment, large or small, depending on the indication. And if you take that away, no no new orphan drugs may be developed. But I guess the question then is, if orphan drugs are only accounting in Europe for 4% of the spend mm-hmm. of the healthcare system as a whole, is this just a lot of misinformation or orphan drugs being put out now as sort of the next boogeyman that we can go after to sort of beat the industry over the head on a certain level? I think it is because there has been a a lot of attention given to targeted medicine and therefore orphan drugs by the large pharma that we start now to have some Some discussions (laughs) which were not there before when it were mostly smaller companies. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you need those larger companies to develop products to get coverage for this gap of 94% without therapies that I mentioned before. So I think it's a question of being fair on both sides. And uh, fairness in pricing is one element. But then on the other hand, uh, if the industry tries to do something about this, uh, it also has to be given a fair chance to continue with that because that's what the orphan drug regulation was made for in the beginning Mm -hmm. to help the patients which had uh, for as long as we know in history, no therapies for their diseases. If the orphan drug regulation went away, do you think that you'd have a retrenchment again? Do you think you'd have a pullback? There is a big chance that there will be, yes. Innovation is uh, a lot of time linked to orphan drugs these days, mm-hmm. not only in the numbers, but also in the concepts. I think what needs to happen rather is earlier even earlier than what we have today, dialogue between the different players in the field with a forecast of what is possible, a priority setting, and a discussion on how the different elements can be uh, brought together between the patient groups, the industry, the regulators, and the payers. We had a session at uh, DIA this year in Vienna. Thomas Salmonson was on the panel. Anya Shield was on the panel. Alexander Natz from Uco Patina Real, Melanoma Patient Network Europe. A really robust discussion. Thomas and Anya Scheel, uh, Thomas Salmonson and Anya Scheel were very much of the opinion that the regulators and the HTAs and the payers could do much more about goal setting and being very transparent and say, okay, we need therapeutics here, here, and here. We're looking for these outcomes. We would definitely reimburse X, Y, and Z to try and you know pull the market along. Do you think that would be effective? Is this a strategy? Do we need to have more of those type of discussions? I definitely think so. Uh, of course, the science needs to be able to deliver Without the basic science available, you sure. can't do anything. But with a good incentive like that, that would certainly focus research, I would assume. Yes, and uh, for example, uh, one of the things that 
definitely needs attention is how can we treat groups of rare diseases instead of one rare disease? Sure. What does science and technology do we need in that? It's definitely possible, but we don't look too much in that direction yet. One of the things we've also seen is uh, an erosion right now of Europe's ability to hang on to late stage biotechnology companies to keep them here. 70% of the global acquisition funds were spent by the United States acquiring companies internationally. Overall, how can we stop this erosion of competitiveness of European biotech? This is a problem. We're not creating the Gileads here. We're not creating these companies. A company is actually of importance where it has uh, an economic impact in, in the form of uh, R&D and manufacturing. Uh, of course, when it's just marketing, then that company is not local. Right. But if it is manufacturing and or doing research somewhere, it is local. And where the headquarters is, in fact, many of the so-called American companies are probably not headquartered in America, but in uh, some island uh, <laughs> somewhere. So it's a question of definition. Sure. The second thing is... If we want to have the same thing uh, happening in Europe as uh, is currently happening with NASDAQ in the US, we need to create a NASDAQ. It has been attempted, but Europe wasn't ripe for it. When we see now many biotech companies, even the, the Flemish ones, are going to NASDAQ to find the money. Because they have to. They have to, but it's also there that you have the financial system available. Sure. It's not available here. So that's related to that question as well. If we want to keep them here, we should create a financial system uh, and the other incentives. But the opposite is true too. When uh, companies are being acquired, they are being acquired for assets that are currently here. Correct. And they keep them here. So the question who is owning them is perhaps not that much important uh, Europeans are putting their finances in Nasdaq as well. (laughs) (laughs) That's true, but not the pension funds, because pension funds in Europe can't do that. So there is a sustainability problem. There Mm -hmm. is a slight tail issue here in that the late-stage value creation is often ending up in, you know, CalPERS is investing in Nasdaq. They're not necessarily investing in Europe because they can, and that's where they need for the return on investment. So there is a gap emerging here, Eric. You do have to, you know, there is a problem on that side. Yes, I'm not sure that pension funds would be able to invest in in biotech anyway because of the risk involved. Well, with the laws here in Europe, they're not allowed to. That's true. Uh, Perhaps what they can do is uh, make a very large fund that then is offsetting the risk by very large numbers. But then you have to go over 500 million at least in euro or in dollars uh, with such fund, then then you can do that. But that requires a different thinking pattern than what is currently happening. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> one final question for you, Eric. Obviously, you are one of the main thought leaders on this space, and you've been instrumental in where we are today and the, all the successes and things that have happened. What one piece of advice could you give to everybody right now who's currently looking at the renewal of the OMP? Well, the piece of advice that I've been given and continue to give on that is be very careful to change too much about a very successful piece of legislation, perhaps one of the most successful pieces of European legislation, before you change anything. Look at evolution rather than revolution in that field. Uh, That would be my advice. Thank you, Eric. It's been a, a pleasure. Thank you. 